So most weeks I get to pray with Ollie, and I think you can see why I choose him as a prayer partner. He prays, my heart is stirred and moved. Get all this paraphernalia out of here. All right, are you with me this morning? It's so good to worship. Um, Charlie, this is Charlotte, your happy birthday. Um, no surprise that on your birthday you're serving, one of the most servant-hearted men I know, a privilege to have him on our staff part-time, and just absolutely wonderful. Turn with me this morning to Second Samuel in the Old Testament, if you're not that familiar with the Bible, and chapter 7, and we're going to read that as a community in a moment. I would just like to say that quite a, a few of the thoughts that I've got bubbling in my head this morning are from um, a guy called D.A. Carson, who's a phenomenal author and preacher and everything else that they do. Um, and he writes a book, what's it called again? Riley, what's the book you gave me? The God Who Is There. That's the book. And just some really powerful thoughts in there if you want to go and read that. All right, so are you looking for Second Samuel chapter 7? And while you do that, let me remind you what our series is about. We're doing a series called Look Up. Look Up, just lifting our eyes up to the Father. It's a series that we explicitly, as an eldership, want to encourage. We want to just breathe encouragement over us after a long couple of years, encourage you, exhort you in Christ. And while our lives are steeped in reality and we all experience the suffering that we know is with ongoing within our community, we want to remind you that the, the Scriptures teach us that we are meant to live a joy-filled life, despite these things that go on. We're meant to live a life that's not full of dull drudgery and boredom. Is your life a bit boring? Ask a friend, I'll probably tell you. We're meant to live a life that pursues peace, a life that pursues love, a life that pursues hope, a life that pursues joy. These are God's good gifts to His people. This is the, the fruit of the Spirit that flows out of us to one another and to us. So if you're living a life that doesn't look like that, I want to remind you that you don't have to. It's not God's plan to live a dull, joyless, peaceless, anxiety-ridden life. Jesus says... I have come to give you life and to give you life in abundance. Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary. Come to me, you who are anxious. Come to me, you who are carrying huge burdens. I want to give you rest for your soul. Some of you just need this little part of the sermon today. Just this tiny little introduction. You need to be reminded that your life doesn't have to look the way it does right now. It's not God's plan or purpose for you. Look up, look up. Help is to be found. Creator, the sustainer of life, he owns your operating manual. Think about that. The God who made you knows how you're supposed to work. Look up to him. He's the one who can fix it. Not, none of us. Look up. Jesus, full of mercy and grace and love, is standing before God the Father. And did you know this? Praying for you interceding for us. Isn't that the most exceedingly encouraging thing? That Jesus, think about this, standing at the, with the Father God, praying, Lord, I pray for Paul. Father, I want to bring him to you with this weakness and this. I'm praying for him. I'm interceding for him. I'm bringing him through to salvation. All right. I don't want to get too excited before we start. I have a friend. His name is Chanda. Chanda Chiseni. Some of you know Chanda because he was part of this church for a number of years. He's a Zambian guy, and we called him the, the Chanda of Thunder 
because when he went on a mission trip to Zimbabwe with Chanda, he needed no microphone. He just speaks so loudly. And one of my favorite guys to pray with was Chanda. And he had this line. He would pray. And his line was, he'd say, covenant making and covenant keeping God. And he used to end it with a God. God. And covenant keeping God. And then he would put his appeal. And he'd say, this is, this is what I'm asking you. Because you're the God who makes covenants. And you're the God who keeps covenants. And so I come with confidence. And so this morning, I'm stealing a... A leaf out of Chanda's book, and I want to speak on promise-making and promise-keeping God. Now, you might be really new to the Bible. I'm so glad you're reading it. I'm so glad you're engaging with it, but you're going to read this section in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You're going to read it in small groups in a moment, but let me just orientate you because I know that reading the Bible can be quite disorientating. David, if you don't know who that is, is the second king of Israel. The first guy is a guy called Saul. He's made the first king and Saul very quickly his heart turns away from God and God strips the kingdom away from him and gives it to a little shepherd boy whose name is David right that's who the king is he's one of the main characters you're about to read about then there's another guy called Nathan Nathan's a key character in this text he is a prophet a prophet a simple way to understand that is someone in the old testament in particular who these are difficult phrases the ark of God, God goes to Moses, or the Exodus, that whole thing that happens with Israel when they're slaves in Egypt and they leave. And he says, I want to dwell with you, but if I come and I live among you, I'm going to kill all of you because you're so full of sin and I'm so holy. So he gives Moses these instructions and Moses builds this tent, this tabernacle or kind of a moving temple, mobile temple. And that is called the ark of God. And then God, in a symbolic way, comes and lives among His presence comes down. And even though He's omnipotent, and that's the all-powerful one, omnipresent is the one I'm looking for, he, he, he restricts Himself in a way to live in this ark of the covenant. So when you read that now, you're going to understand. Okay, does that, that make sense? All of those things. So here's, the, here's quite detailed instructions. Please read in no bigger than groups of four, unless you really feel left out, and then you can make a group of five. Okay, and then 30 seconds at the end of your reading, I want you to read this whole chapter. So it's a big, chunky chapter 7, 2 Samuel 7. I want you to read the whole thing. At the end, please just take 30 seconds only to say to the people in your group, what is the one thing that jumped out to you from this text? Go for it. Let's read together. All right, I think we should, be, we should be there or thereabouts. So guys, what I, want to, what I want to do this morning is I want to take this text. I want to take this text from 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want to exegete it a little bit, which just means go through it and look at what Scripture is trying to say. And then I'm going to end off with some application into our own lives about the promises of God. All right, so that's just a, those of you who really like to know where you're going, that's where we're going to go. I want to trace something of a journey from the promise that you just read in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then we'll land somewhere in the New Testament and then we'll come back to application at the end. All right, so the first thing I want to speak about is a God who makes promises. So let's split this up into two things. A God who makes promises, and then we're going to speak about a God who keeps promises, or does God keep His promises. Isn't it fascinating in this text that you just read that David thinks, right, when you write up in the beginning, David thinks he's going to do something for God. I'm going to make God a house, as if God needs a house, right? So David thinks, I'm going to build God this new house. And even Nathan the prophet, who's a spiritual man, thinks this is a great idea. 
Go for it, David. Do whatever in your heart. Build God a house. And then God makes himself abundantly clear. And I really love the subtlety of it. But in, in chapter 7, verse 5, Dave, uh, God speaks to Nathan and says in his dream, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. In other words, David, you've got some ideas, but this is what God is going to do. You're not the guy to build the house for me, David. You just don't get to say, I'm going to build God's house. And God goes, okay. No, God's God, and you're you. And God says, you're not the guy who's going to build the house for me. He says, I never lived in a house. From the day you, you, know, you weren't wandering around, I never complained. I never asked anybody to give me a house. And then he says this, now go, in verse 8, now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pastures and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. David, remember where you came from. This little shepherd boy. And the idea here is, David, what you think is going to happen, that's not going to happen. I've got another whole plan entirely. But God's not just rebuking him or being mean to him. God then carries on and he says to him, I've been with you wherever you have gone. I've destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. 3,000 years, I think it is, from David. He was 1,000 BC is when his reign began. We still talk about David. Most parts of the world, you ask people, they might not know Alexander the Great or many other of these great names, but they, many of them would know about King David. This is God's promise to him right back here 3,000 years ago. I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them, etc., etc. And then he says this, furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you. Do you see the pun? See, I've got, I'm going to make God a house. No, no, he's going to make you a house, David. A dynasty of kings. So let's get a few introductory things straight as we're speaking about this promise-making God. It's God who initiates in our lives. Now, you might already know this from experience. I certainly do. My promises that I make God as well-meaning as I try to make them, uh, as much desire as I have in that moment to make God a promise, and as much as I think I'm going to follow through on my promise, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I've learned from personal experience how weak I am, how temporal my promises are at best, and how hopelessly over-optimistic they are at worst. And I've learned that through personal promise-making experience. Maybe it's just me. David says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to do this thing. And God says, no thanks. Actually, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make you a dynasty of kings. I'm going to bless you. And God pours out this gracious response on David's life. And so the simple point I'm making as I want to introduce this text is that it's God who sets the course of history. It's God who sets the course of your and my life. It's not us that dictate to God. It's not us who say this is who God is. God tells us who God is. God is the one who dictates history, and it's God who makes men great, not us. All right. So God, what I want to bring through in this first little part God is the promise-making God. 
He's the one who makes promises to his people. And why is that so important? Well, think, just think about this for a moment. Just think about the word God and think about man. How would God, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, has no need of you? As important as you are and as important as human rights are, God has no need of you. God has no need of me. Not at all. Jesus says, these rocks can stand up and preach to you. You don't need a preacher. These rocks, God will raise up these rocks. You, you think you, you Israelites, you arrogant Israelites, you think you're so important in Abraham's kingdom. God will t- turn to these rocks and they will cry out to him if he needs to. And it just centers us in this. Why would God make us these promises? God is a promise-making God, complete as in who he is, sinless, perfect, all-powerful. Then you look at man, fickle, difficult to get on with, always rebelling. When I was preparing, I thought of that wonderful hymn. It's one of my favorites. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take it. Seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And what the hymn writer is saying is, is please come and seal it somehow. Stop it from leaking. Seal it because I just I want to run the whole time. I'm so prone. So God has no reason. I know this is supposed to be encouraging. My wife said last week after I was preaching, you encourage in a very strange way. Um, but I find this deeply encouraging. God has no reason to make us promises. Zero. And here's the encouraging part. And yet he does. This should over and over and over and over again. God pursues us, commits to us, forgives us, and then doesn't just do those things which are unbelievable in and of themselves. He then goes, well, I'm still going to bless you and make promises to you on top of those things which I've already blessed you with. God is a promise-making God, and it's sheer kindness and grace and Love and mercy. And we see this in David's response. If you go and read that response again in in 2 Samuel that you just read, David responds and he's like, God, who am I? Do you make promises like this to all your people? It's just this beautiful, heartfelt response. Now, let's talk about the promise itself because this promise to David is quite unique. Look at verse 11. Go there with me on your phone or Bible, hopefully. It's a promise that I'm pretty confident I can say that none of us are going to get a promise like this in our lives. Verse 11 in 2 Samuel 7. Let me just find it. Just from the second part. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. This is now God's promise to David. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. Say that word with me, forever. All right, you got that? I will be his father. He will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue. Say continue. Before me for all time. Say all time. Josh, you and I are on such on the same wavelength here. Eh? And your throne will be secure forever. Say forever. Okay, have you got the idea here? There's an eternal thing happening in this text. And then you go to verse 29. 
And it says, David, this is not David's response. And he says, and now may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever. I'm not going to make you say it again before you. For you have spoken. And when you grant a blessing to your servant, O sovereign Lord, it is an eternal blessing. Quite a promise, right? Quite an amazing moment that this happens. So we see in this text a God who makes promises. Now, let's turn our attention to the second part and say, well, can God keep his promise? Does God keep his promise to David? It's a very clear promise. You can write it down. You can put it on your fridge and you can go back each week and you can say, has God fulfilled that promise? Has God fulfilled that promise? All right. And this is the promise. Uh, So let's just think about this logically. How could God? So here's the promise. David, forever you're going to have a king on a throne. How could God fulfill that promise? Just don't even think Bible. Just think logic, reason. How could God fulfill the promise? Noah, put you on the spot. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Can't see the expression behind the mask. Okay, so there's two ways. Probably only one of them David was thinking about. I'm going to have a biological son who's going to be a king. And he's going to have a biological son who's going to be a king and so on and so on and so on and so on. Until the world comes to an end, David is going to have a king, a physical king sitting on a physical throne, leading a physical dynasty, right? Then there's another way that you could have an eternal kingdom. And that's if a person becomes a king and that person is immortal. Like remember the Highlander. Anyone used to watch that back in the 1980s? Just me. This is the guy used to get like stabbed and you wake up the next day still alive, basically. So you can have a, that's the only two ways that this promise of God can be fulfilled. That someone is on a throne who is immortal. But I don't think David's even thinking about this, right? Both of those things would fulfill the promise. Now let's, let's, let's think about this story. Timeline, 1000 BC. 1000 years before Christ is how I like to remember it. I know it's not the way they teach it anymore. David goes to Solomon, as now we're looking at like the dynasty, like the actual biological lineage. David goes to Solomon, things already begin to go wrong. There's rebellion in the land. Soon after that, the kingdom divides. Israel breaks away, and David's tribe, Judah, stays separate. And there's still a Davidic king on the throne, all right? So you keep tracking there's a good king a bad king a terrible king idols they start killing the prophets they're building poles and asherahs and all over israel you can go and read it it's quite depressing and then there's a moment of of joy and there's josiah and they discover the bible again and they read it and all the people turn their hearts to god and it lasts for a generation or two and then they 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 just they break it down again cohen um, my daughter said you did such a great job at youth on Friday night speaking about this very thing. She gave me a whole rundown of, of the ups and the downs of Israel and how they went up and down and, and up and down. And then Judah, Israel, sorry, in, there's, there's a fall to Assyria. So they completely destroyed by Assyria. But Judah keeps on hanging on because of this Davidic promise that David's going to have a king on the line forever. But it's not long and Judah with some wonderful God-honoring kings, etc. On the 15th of January, 588 B.C., the exact day, Babylon invades Jerusalem. Judah, David's kingdom, where David's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson is sitting on the throne. And Nebuchadnezzar, a 
obliterates Jerusalem in a two-year siege. He then obliterates the temple of God, that the same house that David was talking about. I want to build a house for God. Well, Solomon built that house, and it gets completely razed to the ground. Not one stone left on top of another. And this is history. You can go and read this. And for the very first time in 500 years, David's line of kings, his biological line of kings, is broken. Right? And so, God, we're asking the question, are you a promise-keeping God? Are you a God who keeps your promise to David, to us? This is the question we're asking. So, we've now eradicated option one, the biological lineage, right? And for hundreds of years, Israel bounced between kingdoms, exile, coming back for a little while, getting exiled again as they sin. And there's no king in Israel. There's no king in Israel. And you wonder what the people must have thought. I imagine they must have thought, we've broken our promise to God. We've broken our promise to God. Now he has broken his promise to us. Now we're really stuffed. That's how I would say it in the tell. Now, now let, let me remind us that right in the promise, God actually graciously allowed for this very eventuality. Do you remember in the, the text you read just now? It says in, in verse 14, or uh, verse 13, if you go back a little bit, I'll secure his royal throne forever. And then God says this, I will be his father and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, who I removed from your sight. So God is already allowing, God's already seeing in his promise, Israel are going to turn away, the kings are going to turn away, God's going to have to discipline them by sending the Assyrians, by sending the Babylonians, by sending the Persians, etc., etc., and he loves them and he does it out of grace, right? Isn't that a beautiful way to see God's judgment rather than just God capriciously, unkindly just hammering Israel? God's saying, no, I love you. I'm not going to discard you like I threw Saul away. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to discipline you because you're my son. I'm going to love you. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to bring you back again and again and again. So we're asking the question, is God a promise-keeping God? Well, let's turn with me to Isaiah, this beautiful text, right somewhere in the middle of the Bible. If you're not sure, just say a prayer and open the Bible and you'll be in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, right? Now, before we read it, let me just give you a timeline again, right? Who remembers? Where was David? Round about year? 1000 BC, okay? When was the, when was the um, Jerusalem fall? Five, 588. 588 BC is the Jerusalem fall, right? Isaiah is writing in about 700 BC. So he's writing 120 years before Jerusalem falls. So what I want you to imagine is there's Isaiah busy prophesying to all the people. He's busy. He's a prophet who says a lot of terrible things are going to happen. Not a very nice guy to listen to on a Sunday morning. He would never have done this series of encouragement. <laughs> and so Isaiah is busy preaching while there is a Davidic king on the throne. So David's kingdom is still going. That promise is still in play as far as they're concerned. But listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 9. He says in verse 6, for, and you'll know this well because we read it at Christmas time. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. In other words, he'll be a king. 
And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. What? How's a line from David, an earthly king, how's he suddenly being called Mighty God? Right? Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor, David. It's the same promise in Isaiah. I don't even think, I mean, who knows? I don't even know whether Isaiah knew what this meant. As he's busy writing these oracles of God. And then look at this last part. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. God made the promise and God's saying, I'm going to do that. Right. So you see David's promise. The passionate commitment that God made. You see, I mean, it just strikes me that we can make all the promises we want. We can try and follow all the laws, all the morals. Don't sleep with your girlfriend. Don't do this. Make sure you pay your tithe. Do this. Do this. We can make New Year's resolutions again and again. But if the Old Testament teaches us one thing, it's this. Man on his own can never, ever, ever, ever come to God without God coming to man. Unto us, a child is born Ollie, in, in prayer meeting this morning, what was that psalm you read, Obies? Psalm 89. It's actually, it's all over the Bible. But I'll just read this for you quickly. Psalm 89. I will sing of the Lord's unfailing love forever. Young and old will hear of His faithfulness. Your, unfaith, your, un, your unfailing love will last forever. Your faithfulness is as enduring as the heavens. The Lord said... I've made a covenant with David, my chosen servant. I have sworn this oath to him. I will establish your descendants as kings forever. They will sit on your throne from now until eternity. This is like an amazing thing. Just all over the Bible, there's this promise to David, this promise to David. You're going to have a king. You're going to have a king. And then turn with me to Matthew, which is the very first book of the New Testament. New Testament is when Jesus comes. The very first book, the very first chapter, the very first verse says this. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah. The one that they have been waiting for. And I'm sure you're not surprised by this point. A descendant of David. And suddenly, option two is in play. What if David, through the line of David, through the tribe of Judah, what if there was a king who came and who sat on the throne and who ruled and just like the Highlander, never died. Never died. An immortal king who lived forever and ever and ever. We see the birth of King Jesus. Ruler of heaven and earth. And we're asking this one question. Does God keep his promise? What do you think? God makes promises. Can God keep promises? Is this? It's incredible for me. A thousand years later, we see Jesus come. A thousand years of pain and confusion and God, where are you? How 
Have you made this promise? But now Israel's in tatters. We, we don't even, there's other verses that speak about, we don't even know who the Israelites are anymore because we're so mixed up among all the nations. You've scattered us all over the world. How are we even supposed to have a kingdom, let alone a king, let alone a king in David's line? God, how are you going to fulfill this promise? For unto us a child is born, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be called Mighty God, Counselor, Wonderful Father. I'm getting the adjectives mixed up, I'm sure. But that, that, it's beautiful. Isn't it? A forever king, an immortal king from David's line. So not only is God a promise-keeping God, a promise-making God, He's a promise-keeping God. What does this mean for you? So this is the Davidic covenant. You are not in David's line, I'm pretty certain. I don't think I am even. I'm not going to make that comment. I love it when the filter comes up just in time. <laughs> how, does this, how does this encourage us? What does it mean in our lives, sitting in Stellenbosch in, in 2021, at the back end of a COVID pandemic, with all the realities of your life, of everything going on in your finances, in your marriage, in your non-marriage, in your career, in your studying, in your exams, in your business, and everything. What does it mean that God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God? Well, I want to unpack that in just two ways. I think the first way is that God's Word is full of promises for every person who believes. If you believe in Jesus, if you're a Christ follower... Do you know that God's Word is packed full of promises for you every day? Every day. My grand used to have this little loaf of bread sitting on the um, fireplace. And each night at dinner, when we were little kids, I lived with my grand. And we used to be able to take out one promise from this big loaf of bread. Maybe some of you will remember these. And we'd, we'd read it. We'd just take out one verse, one promise. And those things stick in your mind and so here's, here's a few, just as an example, but there are literally hundreds of promises that God makes His people. And I listen to some of us talk, and I hear myself talking sometimes, and I just think, we've just simply forgotten what God said. God's spoken about this. God's told us about this. So here's an example. 1 John 5, 14. This is confidence. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. How does this apply to your life? Well, you might be praying, and you might be thinking, God, you don't, I don't think you hear me. It doesn't seem like you hear me. My life doesn't change. Like, the thing I'm praying for doesn't happen. I don't think you act, God. Maybe you think it's because you've sinned and messed up and so God has given you the cold shoulder or that you've been praying for so many years, so long, and you don't get your prayer answered. I want to remind you this morning, 1,000 years. 1,000 years. Promise-making and promise-keeping God. His promise is that He hears us. Not that you'll feel like He hears you. Not that, you'll, that He hears you. God, when you pray... When you leave this meeting today and you're in your car and you say, Father, He hears you. That's the promise 
of Scripture. And you can know this morning, and you can leave encouraged, please leave encouraged, that God has made promises and He will keep His promise to you. And He says, I hear you when you pray. He hears you when you pray. What about this one? Philippians 1 verse 8. One of my favorites. And I'm sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How many of you have seen God begin a work in someone's life? Maybe it's a son. Maybe it's a daughter. Maybe it's a best friend. Maybe it's whoever. A mom, a dad, a husband, a wife. And you've, you've seen that God has done something in their hearts, but they have gone completely AWOL, far away from God. Their lives look nothing like they have no love for Jesus. They're not worshipers of Jesus. What do you do? You come back to the promise-making, promise-keeping God. You go to a text like Philippians 1 verse 8, and you pray it, and you say, Lord, you have promised. You have promised. This is not on me. It's not on my performance. You have promised that what you have begun, you will bring to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And so I bring this person, this friend. I know you've done something in their hearts, Lord. Uh, it doesn't look like it at all. We prayed this prayer for my brother for years who went AWOL. But something of a seed of God. We've seen it in his heart when he was a little boy. He was five years old and we had some missionaries come and stay in our home. And he had warts all over his body. And they prayed for him. And the next morning he woke up with not one wart on his body. And my brother, when he was after all his shenanigans and wanderings, and he's a, a wonderful guy. I went into business with him in the plumbing business. And I remember one day asking him, he came back to faith. And I said, David, what was it that brought you back to faith? And he said, it was that little moment when I was five years old when God took all my warts away. And I said, really? And he said, I never, from that moment on, I never, ever doubted that God was real. I just didn't want to follow him. I just didn't want to. But he knew what God has started God will bring to completion. You might not even know it. I read a story the other day. I, I, I try to find it, and I can't find it. It's one of the men of faith who right before he died, he'd been praying for something like, I think it was 40 years, for a friend of his to come to salvation. And his friend never had never come to salvation. And someone said to him, are you still praying? Do you think that God's going to do this thing that you're praying for? And he said this. He said, the God who made me pray for 40 years did not make me pray in vain. He continued to stir my heart to pray for this friend. This person will be saved. And then he died. And two years later, his friend came to know Jesus. And he never knew that here on earth. He knew that from heaven. My gran, praying for her brother for year after year after year. My gran comes from a history of alcoholism and a history of suicide in her family. When she got saved radically in her 40s, she took all her paperwork from her family and she burnt it symbolically. And she said, Jesus, start a new line. Start a new line. Only one in her family saved. Two or three years ago, her brother jumped out of a building and tried to kill himself, but he didn't go high enough. And he lay in pain for hours. And my gran said to me, she said, Paul, my only prayer is that all these years that I've prayed for him, that maybe that was an act of grace. Maybe that was God in his last moments saying, son, now, come home. Promise making. And sorry, I don't know I'm emotional there, maybe. Oh. <laughs> Drink of water. Promise making and promise keeping God. Friends, maybe today... 
you've grown weary in trusting the promise of God for someone, I want to encourage you, pray. Pray for that person who looks like they're a million miles miles away from God, like they're lost for all eternity. Pray and say, Father, you've begun a work. You complete the work in their hearts. And on and on, on and on, and on and on, and on and on, I could go literally for months telling you about the promises made to us by God. The promise in Matthew 5 that He will be our provision as we seek His kingdom. I look at so many of us so worried daily about finances, anxious about jobs and careers. Don't you know? Don't you know? Go and read Matthew 5, Matthew 6. Do not be anxious. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground. Don't you know how much more will your Father care for you? Jesus rebukes them. He says, you have little faith. He doesn't say, I'm so sorry you're anxious. You have little faith. That's Jesus. That's not me. So you can't tune me afterwards. Jesus tells us that we will rise from the dead and be given new bodies. Wonderful promise for those of us suffering with illness or cancers or or facing death. We're going to have brand new bodies. No more one pack, six pack for me. He, He promises on and on. I think... What I sensed when I was preparing this week, as I was praying for this sermon, is that there's many of us, I'm specifically picking out promises here, that are promises that are delayed, like 1,000 years. That's what it feels like. Like all the odds are stacked against us. Where's your king, David? Where's your king? Where's this Davidic line of yours? And in the delay, while we wait... We need to be encouraged that a God who makes these promises only because of His grace. There's no reason that God needs to make us promises. He only makes them out of His grace and His mercy and His love. The same character motivates God to fulfill His promise. It's His love. It's His mercy. It's His grace. And then I want to close off. I'm actually going to ask my daughter to come and share a little story. But this is the very last one. So there's... there's Promises that we see in God's Word. And then I think that God makes individual people promises. They can be small. They can be big. And I just want to remind us in the room today that we can hold to the personal promises that God has made you and I. You don't have to be like uh, Joseph and tell everyone about it. And this is what God's... Just some of these things. Like it says in... um, it says, I think it's Matthew, that Mary saw these things about Jesus and she stored them up. She treasured them up in her heart. Sometimes it's just this treasuring up in our hearts. So, Esti, will, will you come and share about this, this promise that you felt from the Lord? Take your mask. Hi, everyone. Okay, so when Daniel was born, I was like, okay, that's enough, brothers. <laughs> Jesus, will you give me a sister? And then... You would kind of think that I would be discouraged when Joshi came, um, because I love him, and (laughs) (laughs) but he was another brother. Um, But I actually just started praying harder and praying more seriously, and then I asked God for a sister. Yeah, for a sister, Um, and I asked God to show me in a dream, Um, and it wasn't like a radical, like, clear vision, like, I'm going to give you a sister. It was just, I could remember parts of it that convinced me, and I knew that God was going to give me a sister. I just knew. And I would draw my sister, Annabeth, who's literally right there, and 
I would draw her with brown hair and brown eyes, which was kind of weird because all of us had blonde hair, or had blonde hair, and <laughs> blue eyes. And Anna, I drew with brown hair and brown eyes. And I also remember my parents would sit me down and say, you know, we're done. <laughs> and I was like, no, you're not. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and so I sort of clung on to this promise. And then I remember one day my parents um, got all the kids and we were like, we have some presents for you. So we were really excited and they were like, and you have to give them away. And we were really confused and also a bit put off because we didn't want to give our presents away. Um, and then Nathan started off and he unwrapped his present and it was a baby grow. And we were still a little bit confused. And then it came round to me and I opened up and it was a picture frame. And in the picture frame was a pregnancy scan. And my mum was like, I'm pregnant. And I literally just started crying. <laughs> and then nine months later, we still didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl. And I walked into the hospital, and my mum had dressed Annabeth up in pink, so I knew she was a girl. And she's like, so what's her name? And then they said, Annabeth. And that was literally the name I had given her in my head. All of my dolls were called Anna or Beth. And, and then... Um, I would like put Anna, Beth at the bottom of all the drawings or I would also make clay people. And it was just, it just was a really big reminder that God keeps his promises. He said, I'm going to give you a sister. He gave me a sister. And he also has absolutely perfect timing. If I had had a sister when I wanted one, Joshi wouldn't be here. And Joshi is just such a bundle of joy and we need him. <laughs> So beautiful, eh? So Esther prayed another baby into this world. Literally. So precious. So I want to encourage us as we are done. I want to pray for us. And I want to ask you this morning, where's your trust? Is your trust in the promise of God? The promise of God keeping His promises? Or in what? Or in who? Is your trust, is it in your investments? Is it in your mom? Is it in someone else? A thousand years, all sorts of wealth comes and goes. Kingdoms rise and fall. Dynasties come and go. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Romans, the Greeks, one after the other, they come and they fall, and yet God's promise remains. A thousand years. Jesus comes. Two thousand years. God's promise remains. I don't know how much longer for, but God's promise remains. And as we close, I think... Ben, are you guys going to come and sing a song for us? Um, but I actually want to just do a personal reflection. Can I just ask you for a few minutes just to remind yourself, and if you have a phone or something, write it down if you'd like to. I mean, I'd love you to do that. But actually write down a promise that you feel that God's given you, that you've been struggling to hold on to or that you've forgotten. It can be a biblical promise. It can be a personal promise. Just anything that resonates with you from this morning, write it down. And just say, Lord, I want to today bring this before you again and ask you for renewed faith. We called Annabeth, Annabeth Faith, because of that little moment that Esther just explained right there. Can we do that? So Bernie and, and, Bernie and the band, B and the B, will sing over us and just take a personal moment for a few minutes.